All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Actual Anarchy Podcast, the podcast where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian and anarcho-capitalist perspective. My name is Daniel and my co-host is Robert, and this episode can be found at actualanarchy.com slash 34. Let's say hello to Robert. Robert, how are you, man? I'm living life and loving it, man. Another day in paradise. How are you doing? I'm doing I'm great. I'm talking about... Oh, go ahead. Because uh, I'm, just, I'm just excited. I'm, I'm here talking about one of my... One of my favorite movies. It's it's a divisive movie in many ways in in, in the comic book world, but um, I think it's a solid effort and uh, one of Zack Snyder's better better movies. But how are you doing, Daniel? I'm doing well. Yeah, we're going to be doing The Watchmen today, or which just called Watchmen, right? Just shows how much I know. Uh, and we were going to record this last night, but our guest had something from work come up, so I used the time wisely and built a couple of pages for our website. One is a um, Kind of an overview of the show for incoming guests to get familiar with the program and how we connect and, and all that stuff. So that's going to be a useful thing for future guests. So if anyone out there wants to be a guest, hit us up. And the other one is our tip jar page, which is actualanarchy.com slash tip jar. Uh, no spaces, no caps, nothing like that. And that just has a listing of all the different ways you can support us. It's got our Amazon links, readitfor.me links, Liberty Classroom link. It's got a, a listing to our bookstore and merchandise with our logos and mugs, faces on mugs, mugs on mugs, all that stuff, all at the tip jar page, actuallyanarchy.com slash tip jar. So I use my time wisely. Good job. All right. So if we don't have anything else, why don't we bring on our guest, Ryan, the Afro-Libertarian. Ryan, how are you, sir? I'm pretty good, guys. Glad to be back on with you. I always look forward to this. This is always some great discussions. It blends my two favorite things in the world, movies and Anarchy. So let's go. Yeah, baby. Oh, I thought you were talking about us, Ryan. Oh. <laughs> no, 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 no. You guys. All right, are cool. So, <laughs> so I got a, I got your, your picture up. Uh, nah, it's not you. I know that. Uh, but your website there, theafrolibertarian.com. So guests do hit that up. Ryan hasn't been writing a lot lately, but he will. He, he promised us in the pre-show that he needs to get back at it. And it's got really great content on there. And you can also follow him on Twitter. And there's, there's a link to that on your uh, website right there, uh, Ryan? Correct. Excellent. So uh, I'm going to pull up the Google description. That's usually what we read just to make sure that Google is uh, wrong about something. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you've heard any of our shows lately, but we, we read these and they're often very, very incorrect. But let's go for it. This is Watchmen, the 2009 fantasy drama film on the comic Frank Miller comic graphic novel series. Uh, what? Is that not correct? Am I wrong? Frank Miller? Frank Am Miller? I wrong? Oh, man. Yeah, Am you're I wrong super wrong. All right. Why don't you throw this part out, and then I will uh, read the Google stuff. What's that's the not Google. Of? That's you? <laughs> <laughs> that's embarrassing. No, this is Alan Moore and Dave Givens are the original creative team, but Alan Moore is famously um, wants nothing to do with any kind of adaptations of his work. He thinks he's like a comic book purist. 
and he doesn't, yeah, he disowns anything. So if you watch the, the uh, credits on this movie, you'll see that his name is nowhere to be found. All it is is like Dave Gibbons, co-created by Dave Gibbons, so not, not Frank Miller. All right, well, I guess that's the Batman one. Uh, Batman Returns, right? No, what is it? It's uh, Dark, Dark Knight Returns. Returns. All right. Yes. That's one we're going to do in the future. That's a cartoon one. That'll be cool. Yes. All right. So, Ryan, just because you're back for the third time, I've decided to move the train wreck from the end of the show to the beginning. All right. Here we are, Google description. In an alternate 1985 America, costume stu- superheroes are part of everyday life. When one of his former comrades is murdered, masked vigilante Rorschach uncovers a plot to kill and discredit all past and present superheroes. As he reconnects with his retired associates, only one of which has true powers, Rorschach glimpses a far-reaching conspiracy involving their shared past and catastrophic consequences for the world's future. Yeah, I can quibble with that. But, I mean, one of the big differences that purists will point to is that the original comic book, only Dr. Manhattan is superpowered. And that's kind of made pointed, pointedly in the movie also, but then at the same time, you see like Night Owl and Silk Spectre and Rorschach just like breaking bones and just kicking people and they go flying and they're just like made out of steel. So, I mean, I know why he did it. It makes for a more exciting like visual action scene and they're actually like seem like superheroes. But the point of the story is that you got these regular people trying to fight crime and then you got this essentially this god figure and the, the differences between that um, – was, I think, what Moore was really talking about. But anyway, go ahead, Daniel. Well, I've already been out-nerded on this. Um, <laughs> I did notice that even the older guys, uh, when they were getting beat up, they could take a lot of punishment, and they were still super, super strong. But the Osmandius guy was even stronger and faster than the other Watchmen, as we... The comedian, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the opening fight is between the 67-year-old comedian and uh, Ozymandias in his prime, essentially. And it's, yeah, it looks like two superpowered people duking it out because comedian gets his head put through like plate glass and other pieces of furniture and still gets up and continues to fight. So yeah, they're, they're, they're not just normal people. Yeah. So Ryan, you want to get in on the nerdery? You got any um, special tidbits of, uh, you know, Comic-Con info? From the uh, yeah. Here? I mean, it, you know, it should be noted that, you know, this is an adaptation of a I don't know how many part series, but it was a it was a couple of comic books, but it's mostly known as a graphic novel now. That's how most people read it instead of, you know, one comic book at a time. So it's and if you ever read the graphic novel, it is very in depth. It's uh very detailed. The writing is fantastic. Uh there are little uh uh what do you call them? Easter eggs inside of each chapter where there are newspaper clippings and old files recovered from the government and you get to read through them and it just adds little nuances to the story and background. Uh, so if you can imagine trying to fit all of that, this huge novel with all of these details into a, you know, a two and a half hour movie, it's uh you know, I mean, it's, it's hard, you know, it's, it's a hard thing to do. So uh, Zack Snyder, I mean, I know he's the, not the most loved, beloved person, but he's, you know, he's very polarizing. Some people love him. Some people hate him. Uh, I mean, he's he's a solid director to me. But to me, I mean, he did a really good job with this movie. I mean, this was one of one of those comic book graphic novels that people th- thought could never make it to big screen. And it was just impossible to do. And he, you know, he was able to put it off. And you know, they didn't kill the box office. But I thought it was just a a good solid <clears throat> solid movie. And I, I mean, I really enjoyed it. I liked it more than most people. Uh, as far as just the nerd stuff, 
I thought, you know, he did a good job really translating what was in the comic book directly to film. Like you could literally, you could tell he used the actual comic book as a storyboard for the film. Um, it, I mean, it just looks exactly like it does. The actors look correct. You know, I mean, outside of some, you know, a few little things that he did as far as like the music and some of the, uh, you know, slow motion stuff, you know, you know, you, you either like it or you don't. I, some, I just, you know, like you, know, you mentioned the breaking of the arms and all that. Those were kind of added things by, by Zack Snyder, but uh, it, it is what it is. Other than that, man, I, I, I really enjoyed the movie. I, I think it's just a great story. It, it blends everything. There's, you know, history in it. There's alternative history. There's uh, alternative facts. There's, you know, uh, <laughs> how Trumpian, right? <laughs> and there's, you know, I mean, you got your, you know, your foreign policy stuff. There's war, Cold War, which was written during the Cold War and back in the 80s. So you had all that going on, you know, it's real detailed. And there's, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's like a realistic, even though it takes place in a kind of alternate timeline, you feel the kind of the great realism in it. So, Ryan, you mentioned that in the graphic novels and the comics that there was like little Easter eggs throughout. Were there Easter eggs within the film that you noticed, like within individual scenes? Do any of them stand out to you? Yeah, absolutely. Like, uh, I don't know, which which one did you guys watch? Did you watch the regular theatrical version or the director's cut? Well, I've seen both, but we both, Daniel and I both watched the director's cut just recently. Okay, yeah. So, like, there's the uh, the uh, the newspaper stand. That was kind of a, you know, Easter egg, because in a comic book, that's just a scene that keeps taking place. You know, they, they did a good job about, like, having Rorschach in his unmasked form in the background with this sign holding the end is nigh. You know, there were all kind of little things you could see in the movie. I can't remember everything. But he, he tried to include everything he could, if you watch. Yeah, I'd say the main thing he cut, and probably he should have, is just the, the, the tales of the Black Freighter, just because you can't really, I mean, you can only, you only have so much time. You can't have Although there is, like there is the there alternate... Is, Right, you can watch that that cartoon. There's an animated Tales of the Black Freighter, which you can yeah. watch as a separate companion piece to the movie. Yeah. But in the comic book, the 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 tale of the Black Freighter is interspersed in the comic, and it kind of parallels uh, Ozymandias. And at the end of the the, the comic book, or in the in the Watchmen comic book, Ozymandias makes reference to it and feels like there's a lot more. He has a lot more guilt than he does in the movie. I want to say about yeah. what he's done. There, but as you were, but, I'm sorry. What you were saying earlier, though, about Zack Snyder working from the storyboards and making this movie look like the comic book, I just want to echo because he absolutely does. When he has a comic book or like a, a really good story to work off of, I think he's a fantastic director. He's really good at making a beautiful-looking shot. I mean, that yeah. intro that tells the, the, the history of the Watchmen and the, the, you know, the, the Minutemen and all that, just leading up to the present day, it's just fantastic. Um, and then the, the whole movie, it just looks absolutely beautiful. Uh, Jeopardy Morgan as a comedian is like ripped from the comic book pages. Uh, Rorschach looks fantastic. Yeah, I mean, just everything looks fantastic. Um, Manhattan looks great. Um, yeah, but what were you going to say? No, I was saying there was a, there's an alternate, uh, what is it, the ultimate cut version of the DVD, and it actually oh. has the, uh, the cartoon spliced into the movie. It's like oh, is that an half, official thing? Yeah, it's you could get it on D, on Blu-ray, and it's like three and a half hours. It's three and a half hours long. But when you, huh. I, I watched it once, and it was like perfect. It was like this is Watchmen as oh, it should have yeah. been presented, you know. But nobody would pay like 
you know, 20 bucks to watch a four-hour movie. So <laughs> I understand what right. they did. You know? But it, 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 I mean, I just think it's a masterpiece, you know. I, I loved it. It's not the most perfect thing. I, I could nitpick certain things, but, you know, I mean, a lot of, when it first came out, all everybody talked about was Dr. Manhattan's uh, uh, sling thingy, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, grow up, man. Yeah, it's like, grow up, man. I mean, it's like, okay, you know. <laughs> They talked about it. I mean, it's not like we didn't know. I mean, in the comic books, it's right there. It's like, okay, you know, he yeah, and it's important, it. right? And it's important to the story because it kind of illustrates just how far removed from humanity he is that he doesn't even see the need to wear clothing. And the only time he puts clothes on is when he goes to like some function where he's being interviewed or that he's going to a funeral or something like that where he feels like he has to. But otherwise, he's most comfortable just being who he is and being naked. I mean. Right. He's basically a god. So what do you want? Right. He's like ripped out from that. Uh, who is that? Uh, is that Michelangelo or? Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, David. You know, David. David. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He's just like perfect. You know, he's you know he's the perfect man being whatever it is. You know, he doesn't need clothes. I wouldn't. I would walk around naked too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if I looked like that. <laughs> All right, guys. I, All right, I'm so just let's read a section oh. of the plot here, if that's cool, and then we can. Just talk about that section, maybe. I've, I've got the well, Wikipedia stuff up, or do you want to go another direction, Robert? Well, I just wanted to give an overall, like an overview of the story. I mean, I know you did the Google thing, but I just want to reiterate that this is, uh, it's a bunch of normal people being superheroes, and then there is, it's an alternate history, but it takes place in 1985, United States, where Nixon is still the president, because he's been reelected multiple times. And there's this, seven years prior to the story, there's this thing called the Keen Act which makes being a superhero illegal. So there's the fallout from that, and whether the superheroes think that was a good thing or a bad thing plays into the story, I think. So um, anyway, okay, let's get into it. All right, so I'll just read the first portion here. The Minutemen, a team of costumed crime fighters, was formed in 1939 in response to a rise in costumed gangs and criminals. The Watchmen was similarly formed decades later. Their existence has dramatically affected world events. Dr. Manhattan's powers have helped the United States win the Vietnam War and given the West a strategic advantage over the Soviet Union, which by 1985 threatens to escalate the Cold War into a nuclear war. Additionally, the comedian has suppressed evidence of the Watergate scandal, allowing Richard Nixon to repeal the 22nd Amendment and be elected for multiple terms. Growing anti-vigilante sentiment leads to masked crime fighters being outlawed. While many of the heroes retire, Dr. Manhattan and the comedian operate as government-sanctioned agents, and Rorschach continues to operate outside the law. Yeah, that's about right. And then Ozymandio says, become a super mega billionaire in industry. And he is, he is publicly known. His secret identity is publicly known, but nobody else is. Yeah, no one else has revealed themselves, right? And I have to admit, in, in watching this film and not being familiar with the source material, it was a bit confusing. Uh, Mostly because it's a super long movie and I had to watch it over like three different nights <laughs> and try to remember what I was watching. <laughs> well, maybe we could uh, talk about that. I mean, what was there anything in particular that you found confusing or just just the, the, the depth and the, the breadth and the length of it? Well, there was a lot going on for sure. And they, it kept shifting back and forth in time, it felt like, because early in the film, uh, the comedian dies in a fight and you don't know who the assailant is the, you know we've already said who it is uh but then it goes back to instances where the comedian uh his name's what blake edward blake yes yep. uh where he's like a total dick 
in constant, you know, in various situations, like he nearly rapes um, this this one woman who's part of the Minutemen. Uh, when he's in Vietnam, he knocks up some some woman and she confronts him and he like shoots her. Like they keep shooting back and or going back and forth. I guess recalling him uh, like at his funeral. And yes. It was a like okay, you know, when when is this and who is he and who is this person? It took a while to figure that out, and I noticed the guy holding the sign, the end is nigh, and I thought that that was supposed to be the guy who might have been doing the murder or hunting the people, but it turns out it's the Rorschach guy. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, I guess I've seen the movie so many times that I think that the storytelling is really solid. Ryan, did you, I mean, you've probably seen the movie too many times to be able to comment on this, but what do you think of the the, the plotting and the, the narrative and the, the pacing and stuff? Yeah, I mean, I could I could understand because you know, from for me, I had already read the read the uh, you know the graphic novel like literally right before I saw the movie, so everything was fresh. But if having not read it, I can't imagine I can't imagine you know watching it and and like well, what's going on here, and especially the theatrical version, which was really kind of condensed down. But I can understand that because you're like, okay, what's going on? Why you know why are we supposed to feel sorry for this asshole the comedian you know mm. but it kind of the the whole point of that was he first of all his name is the comedian you know he's he makes a joke of everything he just thinks life in general is a joke the human's existence is a joke he just like oh it's a joke it's all a joke he doesn't he doesn't feel anything for killing a you know a pregnant woman or, anything, or killing anybody he just doesn't care he's just everything's a joke to him but i think you know uh dean morgan uh, the direction they took in the movie, you were able to find feel something when he was sitting in the uh, you know uh, apartment, sitting on a bed crying. You know, you're like, why is this guy crying? You know, what is he crying about? And you were able to feel something like this guy is finally confused. Like he's finally hit that point where he actually feels something. The comedian of all people, the guy who fears nothing, that doesn't care. You know, and it, so. Uh, but overall, the whole plot. I mean, it's 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 a lot to fit in in a movie. But uh, I think if you if you watch it like one more time, just knowing what happened, it'll 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 feel better. It's one of those movies that you could actually watch two or three times, and you actually hear things clearer like the second and third time. Yeah, now that I kind of have the lay of the land, I think it'll make a lot more sense because I was confused at um, like why Silk Spectre starts crying because she discovers who her dad is. Like, why is that a big deal? I mean, I. I on an individual level, I guess, yeah, that's a big deal, but, like, why would you cry about it? Well, I know you uh, had questions about the ending, if you want to talk about that at this point. Well, we're not, we're not anywhere near the ending, but... <laughs> well, on, on, what you mentioned, on what you mentioned about uh, Silk Spectre when she cried, when she found out, she found out the comedian was actually her father. And, I mean, the, re- the reason she cried is because she's hated him her whole life. Because the first Night Owl, the old guy, he, he had wrote a book you know, detailing the old Minutemen and all that stuff. And he talked about how Edward Blake raped the original Silk Spectre, you know, back in the day, you know, and she, you know, she hated him for that. You know, when she read about him raping her mother, she hated him for that. And come to find out, you know, that's her mother, you know, that's, I mean, that's her father, you know, and she spent all this time thinking the other guy's a father, but really it was the guy she spent all this time virtually hating, you know. So that was why she cried. Well, I'm a little confused there because, like, at that meeting, she's, like, interested in the comedian. And then Silk Spectre 1, like, comes and pulls pulls them apart and is like, no, don't talk to him. No, that was, she was interested in uh, Dr. Manhattan. That's who she was giving the googly eyes when she was, like, standing there in that meeting. And she was like, hey, don't, 
you know, other than that. But she was looking at, but and she she also didn't know about the whole rape thing that came out in the book that uh the first night I wrote later, you know, later in the movie he released okay. that book. Yeah. Now is that is that Roy Schreider? Is that how you say his name? Like the the Jaws guy? Yeah, is it is it him or is it? No, nah, that's. I mean, I don't know the character playing the actor playing Hollis Mason, but no, I don't think so. I could, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Pretty sure that's not the Jaws guy. All right, I'll, I'll just look it up. I'll look it up. Uh, you guys chat for a minute. I'm gonna look it up. No. It's... Okay. Well, I... go ahead. No, go ahead. I'll just say that's not him. But it's funny because they do have some similarities. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Um, no, I. Yeah, it's a this guy movie... named Stephen McCaddy. Yeah. It's the guy that played Hollis Mason. Yeah. Okay. Good. Glad we got yeah. that figured yeah. out. He played him. All right. Hey, you people are learning so much about this movie from us. Uh, I feel totally out of my element here, but I got two guys backing me up here. Fraser. All right. So Ryan, um, I mean, Daniel and I talked a little bit beforehand, and every time I've watched this movie, I always identify with Rorschach. I, even though he is like a, a sociopath, and he will kill people, but only according to his kind of code. Um, he's very much a uh, a method guy. He doesn't really care too much about the outcome. He's very much a no compromise. I will just act according to my principles and then damn what happens. I don't care if it brings about Armageddon. I'm going to stick to my principles. Where we have Ozymandias being the ultimate utilitarian where he will, and we're just going to use spoilers. It doesn't matter. Um, he will kill, he'll sacrifice millions to, quote, save billions. And it, that falls apart for me for many reasons, first of which being, well, you did it once. And in the, in the book, Manhattan makes the point, and not so much in the movie, that yes, you may have saved humanity right now, but how long will it be before it's going to happen again? I mean, they both believe, both Manhattan, I mean, sorry, both Ozymandias and Rorschach both believe that mankind is inherently savage and will destroy itself when given the chance having this, the nuclear weapons. And, and Ozymandias believes that only the threat of God, basically Dr. Manhattan, can keep people in line, whereas Rorschach believes that no mankind has to keep itself in line. Yeah, for me, it's always Rorschach, man. I mean, he's like the, the hero of the story for far I'm concerned. I mean, I'd like to get your take on it, of whether whether anybody can like rationalize Ozymandias at all. I mean, he says he's the smartest man in the, in the world, but yet I, I find all kinds of flaws with his solution to this, uh, to this issue. Yeah. I mean, Rorschach is the, you know, he's the most popular of this story, which is funny because he's a, a, a right winger. He's like a right wing guy. Not, you know, not in the sense of, you know, ultra conservative, you know, wearing a suit, you know, no, but he's right wing in the sense, you know, he hates, he hates the, uh, you know, the crime and the prostitution and, the, you know, he's he's just one of those, he just, he hates, you know, the inner city and the disgust, he's disgusted by it. Like he feels it all in his bones and his body, you know, it really disgusts him down. He's like a, you know, a law and order type of guy, you know, he wants, you know, and he's disappointed, he's disappointed in humans, thinks we're all savage, you know, that we just need to, we need to figure out a way to become like better people, but he just, he's come to the conclusion conclusion that it'll never happen. You know, we and we saw his history in the uh, in the movie, you know, how he grew up or whatever. So he's a very dark individual, you know, and very uh not not optimistic at all about the human the human existence, you know. But he's just here to fight crime and, you know, to kind of correct the rights where he sees wrongs. And it you know, it sometimes it's not 
it's not clear, you know, but he sees black and white. There's no gray for him. Literally. You know? Yeah. It's, <laughs> yeah. Like that's the whole point of his mask. You know, it's black and white, the whole Rorschach thing with it moving around. There's no gray. And I mean, but he's awesome. Everybody loves him. I always, he was my favorite. Like when I read the book, I was just like, oh, this guy is just awesome. You know, and he, then you find out he's just this guy walking around with a, you know, the end is nice sign. You know, he's like, he probably, if he existed today, he'd be listening to Alex Jones. You know, it's, <laughs> Turn he's the just, frog oh, yeah. gay. Right. You know, he'd be one of those guys, you know, so he's very likable. Uh, and I, I, and, but Ozzy, Ozzy Mandias, he's your typical, you know, left liberal billionaire who thinks they figured it all out. They oh, figured out. The smug liberal, like, know it all. Right. I figured it out. I know what's wrong with the human existence. And all I need to do is this, this, and this, and I'll fix it. You know, it's that he's that guy. He's labeled the smartest guy in the world. You know, I don't know if he calls himself that or people deemed him that, but it wouldn't be surprising if people deemed him that because he's able to been able to make money and he is very intelligent, you know, but I mean, it's obviously it's his plan. His ultimate plan was, I mean, it's obviously flawed. You know I mean? He killed scores of people, you know, yeah, with his plan. Yeah, millions thinking he's, it's okay if we save this many people, it's okay to kill this many people. Where does that stop? If we kill a billion people to save a billion and one person, is that okay? Yeah. Like, where does this stop? You know, I mean, it, 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 there's a screwy kind of moral code there. You know? Right, suppose you're one of the, the first billion, right? Right. I mean, what makes them less valuable, you know? I, yeah, that's exactly the point like yeah, under pure utilitarianism where they where the ends justify the means as long as you deem that the the end benefit is a net positive but calculating net benefits is impossible because you can't calculate subjective value value scales are ordinal they're not absolute everyone's mm-hmm. idea of what the greater good is going to be different so exactly. under pure utilitarianism you can just use it to justify any horror I mean, throughout history, tyrants have always had perfectly good reasons to slaughter people. They've always been sold to the people as being for the greater good. Right. And, uh, yeah, without being tempered by, you know, some sort of morality, some sort of principle. Right. I mean, look <laughs> at the uh, – I was talking to someone uh, – I was, you know, going back and forth with somebody recently about the nuclear bomb bombing of, uh, you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. You know, because I mentioned we were the only ones that ever dropped their atomic bombs on everybody, but yet we choose to – I mean, we're constantly badgering everybody else who tries to come up with some stinky, stinking, weak nuclear bomb. It was like, oh, we had to drop the bombs because a, a ground troop invasion would have been more deadly. We would have lost thousands and thousands of troops and blah, blah, blah. I mean, that's all besides the point. You know, I mean, we co-signed on, not we, but they co-signed on literally deleting, you know, hundreds of thousands of people at once, you know, for the greater good, you know. Yeah, control and, out, delete, empty your trash. <laughs> yeah, like select all, delete, delete permanently delete. Yeah. Blue, blue screen of that. Or white think flash about that. that. And not to mention the, the people that, you know, survived for the year or two afterwards who had to go through all that torture of, you know, radiation poisoning and deformations. That's sick, you know what I mean? But, you know, we've conditioned ourselves to think, hey, it's what we had to do. It was the best option available, you know. It was the utilitarian approach. And, you know, it's, life is a little more complicated than that. So do you guys both see, like, the two poles where Rorschach and Ozymandias, like, utilitarianism versus principle? Because I kind of see that developing. And I think if I were to watch the film again, I would be more keen to take interest in that. Because uh, there was a moment where Rorschach sort of, 
he broke. You know, there was the straw that broke the camel's back, and that was when he discovered the six-year-old girl who had been abducted and what had happened to her. And he made a point to, like, tell himself that the, the guy who did it was no longer a man. He was a dog, and you put a dog down. So he dehumanized the individual to sort of justify to himself to be able to take that guy's life, whereas Ozymandias is just playing with numbers. You know, it's almost the Stalin thing, like one death is a tragedy, a million or a billion is a statistic. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, one thing about the the movie, and I, I definitely want to focus on the movie, but the um, the difference in the comic book between that scene, that particular scene, is Rorschach actually just handcuffs the guy and gives him a gives him a, a handsaw, like a hacksaw, and then I believe he doesn't he set the the room on fire. So he basically yeah. gives the guy a, a choice: you cut oh, your hand like, off, and you can live. Maybe like that's where the whole situation. the whole saw franchise came about because of that one <laughs> part probably of the comic, right right there probably. yeah very influential comic for sure yeah um but that is interesting what you say about dehumanizing people so then it it allows him to yeah put them down like you say um whereas yeah ozymandias he's already committed to killing you know millions and millions and millions of people i mean what are a few more people like rorschach what he says at the end you know What's one more body on the pile of this lie? Go ahead and do it. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Ozymandias, yeah, he wouldn't flinch at murdering an old friend like Blake. I mean, you know, even though we've, we know Blake is not a good guy, but he certainly didn't deserve to just be murdered for this lie. I mean, he could have been murdered for any number of other reasons, <laughs> but not necessarily this one thing. Yeah, interesting. There was a few scenes that I definitely want to get to, but before we do, um, Ryan, were there any particular scenes that you wanted to kind of explore more, or Daniel? I thought the, the movie kind of gleaned over the whole Keen Act thing, you know, which I, mm. I just thought was interesting because, okay, in the 1930s and 40s, you know, you have this, you have the Minutemen right there. You know, they, these are regular folks, you know, some of them policemen, some of them have been in the military, but they decide to say, hey, you know, there's all this crime going on. You got these masked criminals coming out. Let's do a, you know, this is when comic books were very young. This was before Superman. You had real comic book heroes that came to be, you know, and they come together and they fight crime. And this is all good, you know, and it become kind of like a throwback for society. Kind of like we look at baseball back when, you know, Babe Ruth was playing and stuff like that, or back when the first Superman comic book came out. You know, kind of that throwback for Americans. And then after Dr. Manhattan comes to be, you have the creation of the new Minutemen or the Watchmen, which they don't call themselves. They were called the Watchmen by the public. And they come together and they're like, you know, hey, let's get back together and fight crime. We got the original comedian here. He was with the Minutemen, you know, and they were going to fight crime because of the whole, uh, you know, craziness going on during the 68, you know, the 68 days with all the, you know, the riots and the, you know, yeah, the, you know, everything going on with Martin Luther King and Martin Luther King and JFK, you know, it was just crazy times during those times. So they came out to kind of be the enforcers, you know, and then, the, you know, the one of the, this was around the time when I first kind of started becoming, you know, flirting with libertarianism. And there was that, there was a quote in the, although in the Watchmen comic book, who watches the Watchmen? And I just always loved that quote because, you know, the guy, the watchman, the guy at night, the security guard or whoever, who watches him? You know, he's the one that enforces the law. He's the one who decides what's right or wrong. Who watches him? That was constantly brought up with them. Who watches the superheroes? Who watches 
the the mass guys that who's making sure to make they to make sure they are doing the right thing you know and that was the big question and then of course the government comes and passes the keen act which bans mass vigilantes so they all had to come out and reveal who they were which basically destroys mass vigilantes you can't be a mass vigilante if everyone knows who you are where you live you know your social security number and so on so except for rorschach who said hey I'm going to do my own thing, but it's, you know, I'll be, a, I'll be a fugitive. You know, he just stuck with his principles and said, Hey, I'm being a mass vigilante. That's what I signed up for. You know? So I just thought that could have been fleshed out a little more in the movie. It was just kind of, you know, fast forwarded through within like 20 or 30 minutes. Yeah. These are really complex characters and I tribute to uh, credit to Alan Moore for really writing them really fleshed out. Um, for me, the, uh, the mass vigilante, especially in this movie, for some reason, really strikes me more as, entrepreneurs trying to fill uh, a gap in the market of justice mm. and going out and laying their lives on the line and not necessarily getting paid, but getting paid in satisfaction and payment in their own risk of their bodies and also their sanity. I mean, when the Keen Act comes wrong and both Hollis Mason and I, the first Night Owl and the second Night Owl and Silk Spectre, they all basically say, yeah, the Keen Act was a good thing. Silk Spectre specifically says it's the best thing that ever happened to us. And both Hollis Mason and Night Owl say, yeah, well, I don't miss it at all. Basically implying that it takes kind of a crazy person to dress up in whatever and go out and fight crime like this. Right. Um, and that it, you had to have the, the violent force of authority of government to come crashing down and make it all illegal to finally make you quit and go back and live a quote unquote normal life. It really kind of speaks to the psychology of these characters and saying that, yeah, if you're going to do this, you're, you're kind of crazy <laughs> and you right. have some sort of authority over you. Do you think that was like a coping mechanism, like a cognitive dissonance thing where they had to accept the dictates of the government and sort of justify them and, and come to terms with them? So they had to put it in nicer terms and say, well, it was actually a good thing that they forced us at gunpoint to no longer do this. Yeah, I think I think there's a warring that's the, the two forces at play in that. It's uh, on the one hand, they, I'm sure they, they resent it because, hey, this is the thing that they were voluntarily doing and they obviously enjoyed it. And, you know, it's got its ups and its downs, of course. You're going to have good days, you're going to have bad days, you're going to have wins and losses. But at the end of the day, they kept suiting up for some reason because they saw value in it. And then, yeah, there's a, a gun comes along and says, no, you can't do this anymore. And, yeah, I think you're going to kind of uh, get a little Stockholm syndrome and kind of say, yeah, I guess I needed that. I'm, I'm happier now for some reason, even though clearly that's not the case. I don't think you'd stri- anybody in this movie really strikes you as like a happy, a happy ex-crime fighter. The only one that's kind of like okay with himself is probably Manhattan maybe a little bit, and then definitely Rorschach. Um, but everybody else seems a little bit uh, down. Well, Rorschach never gave it up. Manhattan was detaching from humanity, so I don't think he was happy. Uh, the original Silk Spectre, she was just drinking herself to be happy about it, I think. Right. And you also got to understand the uh, when Dr. Manhattan came on the scene, that affected everyone. So it's like, you know, why am I out here risking my life for fighting crime? And this crime and this guy can literally, he literally won the Vietnam War by himself. He just walked in, you know, he's like 500 feet tall. and Yeah, Godzilla style. Yeah, he's just blowing people up and... They kneel to him. Like, why would I risk my life fighting crime when this thing exists? You know, I mean, it's he, he made everyone feel smaller, you know, just by existing. He, you know, his, he suffered for that, I think, personally, because he wasn't human anymore. He was a human guy once, but 
he tried to hold on to it, but as time went on, he just became less and less human. You know, he saw that with his relationship. He saw that in the flashbacks with his uh, previous uh, previous wife or girlfriend. He just couldn't connect with regular emotions anymore. He, the things we care about, he didn't care about. He sees time. He doesn't see time in a linear form like we do. He sees everything at once. I mean, I'm, I can't even comprehend that with my mind. You know, so imagine being him. Right. Yeah. He gets to be such a so unconcerned with the human race at the end that he's like, I'm not even concerned. Life is super cool. Like, Important, like yeah, uh, because yeah. He, pro- he probably already sees when humans no longer exist. So it's like, okay, you're not even here right now. I don't, I'm talking to you, but <laughs> you know, in 500,000 years, you won't exist or whenever, you know? Yeah. And yeah, like the humans can squabble and fight and live and die and the universe doesn't give a shit at all. So right. it what does well it even matter anyway. if I, if I go and save you from nuclear war or not. It might as well be an anthill, right? Like we walk by an anthill, we're just like, whatever, it's there. <laughs> Even less. Yeah. Pretty much. Pretty At least ants yeah. bite. At least ants bite. He doesn't get hurt. Yeah. Yeah. So, hey, while we're on the subject of Manhattan, when he goes to Mars and he builds this, like, three-dimensional clockwork spaceship thing, uh, what's that all about? Do you guys know what that is? What is it? Explain that to me. Well, so his father was a watchmaker. And there's a scene in the movie where he's a young kid and his father is teaching him how to put a watch together. I loved it. And then the reason he went back into the experiment was to get the watch that either his father gave him or he had made with his father's assistance and whatnot. And so, yeah, I, I took the, the, the creation on Mars as being like this, this clockwork creation. Not necessarily that it told time or whatever, but yeah, that, that's repeated throughout the movie. Not only with Manhattan but then also the, the five minutes to midnight, the doomsday clock constantly be showing up. So do you think it was like uh, almost a uh, echo of a connection to his humanity? Like he built yeah, this probably. thing because right. yeah. his father and it was meaningful, but he didn't really have an, a connection any longer. It was just kind of there. He's going through the motions. Yeah. Sort of, yeah. I mean, if, yeah maybe. if you look at the scene when he walks into the, uh, I forgot what that machine was called, but where his, you know, his molecules and, atoms were pulled apart you know right before it clicks on he keeps having these flashbacks to his father teaching him you know the details of putting the watch together how each piece has to go on top of each, on top of each other it has to be synchronized perfectly and he's doing that in his mind showing him how to put himself back together once he's taken apart you know so obviously that has like a major you know a way of how his brain works how he thinks you know, it's a big influence on him. So that's why the that whole tower thing is kind of shaped like a watch, the inner workings of a watch anyway. And it just, I mean, visually, it's just pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so let's, if you, if you guys don't mind me driving a little bit. Um, Not at all. Manhattan, Go for it. He, he's able to view the future, at least for himself, right? But Ozymandias uh, was able to somehow block his view. <clears throat> this was like a confusing plot point to me. It sort of revealed at the end, he was like, oh, I did this to make sure that Manhattan was working on something that I, I wanted, which was to be able to destroy all these cities, but I was able to mask it so that he couldn't see the future. And then I purposefully used his psychological profile to push him away from his wife. And, you know, it got all convoluted and weird. Uh, but how did that work? Like, yeah, he's the smartest guy on the planet, but... Well, but Manhattan is, is a huge obstacle for him as basically this God figure. So yeah, and he's got this massive plan to 
destroy the world in order to save it because he foresees the the nuclear holocaust coming but yeah um i i mean you have to take it as a sort of a conceit of the story that he's able to one block his future site with these tachyons and then have not john not be able to realize why and then also have him working on this free energy machine and i want to mention the which by the way can blow shit up (laughs) which can also blow shit up but um, one of the key things in this movie, and there's even a scene with uh, Vite talking to some industrialists where Vite's making this free energy machine, and one's like, what do you mean socialist stuff? And um, Vite think, seems to think that wars are caused by a shortage of resources. And yeah, he's partially right. I think there is some of that. Uh, wars are definitely fought to control certain natural resources, but just but it's like a low remove... IQ. It's a low IQ response to something, right? Like free trade is always better, right? Yeah, I, I, I don't think once you get rid of you know the need for fossil fuels, all of a sudden, I mean, if if the world had free energy tomorrow, there would still be war uh, because we still have governments, and there would still be reasons for them to squabble and control things and fight and i mean maybe there would be less war maybe but governments still control their people and war is the health of the state right so and i don't think vite realizes that i don't think Moore realizes that um but so for me that 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 rationale or that that character trait of his thinking that he was going to solve all the world's problems like you like ryan said that the fatal conceit of the like the elite educated liberal guy thinking he's going to just with his massive intelligence to solve all the world's problems. He's, he's clearly wrong. He's clearly well, he, wrong. He's clearly wrong for, for many reasons. He, he, he's the Paul Krugman, the Joe Stiglitz, the Robert Reich of the movie. Bill Gates, everything, you know. And, you know, like you, you spoke about uh, how he fooled Manhattan. It's mentioned, it's mentioned like in the first Manhattan scene, Dr. Manhattan says, for some reason I'm not able to see the future like I normally can. It's cloudy. You know, and that's a hint to the tachyons. Tachyons are uh, theoretical particles. I mean, you you can actually look them up on Wikipedia. They're theoretical particles that travel back in time, so to speak, or they they travel through the universe without regard to time. So Ozymandias was able to create a burst of these tachyons that clouded uh, Dr. Manhattan's future. He wasn't able to see what was going to happen. And theoretically, Tachyons are a byproduct of atomic explosions. So when he said my future is cloudy and it could be because of tachyon, the assumption was it's because of nuclear war, which is the thing hanging over the entire movie. The Soviet Union and the United States are going to break out a nuclear war. And so a nuclear war would cause these bursts of tachyons throughout the, you know, the, uh, you know, the field of the earth. So it was assumed that that's why Dr. Manhattan couldn't see the future. That's why they, Half of the, most of the movie is spent thinking somebody is trying to kick off World War III between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, which is complete opposite. Osmandias is trying to make peace between the U.S. and the USSR, you know, which, okay, sounds like a good thing, but, you know, it comes back. <laughs> nuclear weapons. <laughs> right, exactly. He uses these weird tachyon weapons, I mean, these weird energy weapons, but the thing about these weapons is Dr. Manhattan helped build them, build them, and they have, it, they use this, Dr. Manhattan energy signature, which, you know, don't make me explain that. But that's why he's blamed in the end for doing this. He, you know, he's ran off the set of that TV show when he says, no, and he just vaporizes, makes everybody uh, reappear outside, and he, he leaves the Earth to go to Mars. So they think this is his revenge. 
he's blowing up, killing all these people. So now the USSR and the U.S. has to unite because of this alien alien uh, force. All right. So was that was that like concocted by Ozymandias to have that be a live television event that would drive him crazy? Like, yes. Okay. Yeah. yeah okay. Because he was he was saying that oh uh, you've given this person cancer, that other person cancer, and this person cancer, and then they walk in his previous wife, girlfriend, whatever. Right. She's got her hair falling out. So Ozymandias manipulated him to have a, that outburst and yep. and have it be live television. Like yeah, and he also time. he also gave those people cancer. Yeah. He is a <laughs> evil motherfucker. That Ozymandias. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Look at him. Look at him. Jeez. But uh, guys, let's let's uh, let me pose a question to you guys. Um, in the context of the movie, in the story, Nixon is sitting there with Kissinger at their war council, and he's talking about DEFCON, whatevers, and they're talking about the acceptable losses if they launch a preemptive attack, just launching all their nukes and just obliterating Russia before Russia can respond. And what would they lose? Well, Russia would be able to get you know X number of nukes off, and it would blow up the eastern seaboard. And they're like, well. That's not. That's all right. It's not a big deal. It's fine. We can we can live with those losses. So they're. I mean, they don't give a shit about you know people. But in the context of the movie, uh, Nixon was about to go ahead and launch before Ozymandias killed everybody. Like he had moved to DEFCON one. He had fueled the bombers. He was about to order them go. We assume we don't get a scene with that, but. They were all moving in that direction. You can, I think you can safely assume that had Ozymandias not acted, nuclear holocaust would have occurred. And so, Nixon would have. Yeah, so would is Ozymandias actually a hero in that sense? I mean, obviously, I don't agree with what he did. Um, I think he, it was the smartest man on the earth could have come up with a better idea. But did he save the world? Well, didn't he push the whole narrative, though? I mean, why did Nixon think that they were on the brink of this thing. Why was DEFCON going from three, four, two to one? Wasn't that Ozymandias' doing? Mm, uh, I don't no, think I don't so. think so. Because this was right around the time they were, uh, Russia was planning to invade Afghanistan. And when, I don't But know, as we know from Rambo films, they failed. <laughs> no, but I think, I think, uh, I think it shows in the film. It's really quick. You know, that's what sucks about this. It's really quick. But when Manhattan leaves the earth, that gives Russia the go-ahead to, like, hey, we can do what we want to do. Let's invade. Right, so it is Ozymandias is doing because he's the one who drove Manhattan away. True, true. Hey, yeah, but, right. but he was – well, it's true. Yeah, I mean, they did find him on Mars and whatnot. And they, but but he went there because Ozymandias pushed him away from his humanity. Mm-hmm. He purposefully did that, and he calculated that, and he knew it would happen, and he was surprised when Manhattan showed up at his south uh, – is it Antarctica? But, but I think. Right, but, uh, go ahead. But 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 um. But it wasn't the threat of Dr. Manhattan still being on Earth that would have stayed everybody's hand. I think Nixon still would have launched with or without Manhattan there. I don't think it was so. only. I, I think the whole point was that Manhattan was there, like being the detente. He was the one. He was beyond mutually assured destruction. Like he was like the overpowering, overwhelming force uh, to use a Bush doctrine but, language to prevent never, an attack. But he never movie. established himself as that. Manhattan never in this movie comes out and says, play nice, everybody, or else. Right. Never once does he actually come out and take any kind of political stance. But he is in the employ of the government, and he even yeah. has oh, handlers. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and, he, uh, and if you remember, the 
the explosions take place before he gets back from Mars. So when, when him and uh, uh, young Silent Jupiter gets back, you know, Manhattan's is, Manhattan is, has a big hole in it. You know, and yeah, it's like, oh, what the surprised. hell just happened? Right, so right. he didn't even get a chance to say, hey, I'm back, guys. You know, I mean, it's already, the damage is done. So that after that, that's when he goes to fight uh, Ozymandias. And you also have to consider, while he was keeping everything calm, there's that whole thing hovering over the, over the world that, you, you, the USSR and the United States are on the brink of, you know, nuclear, you know, nuclear holocaust. So it was gonna, bound to happen in the movie, and that's how Ozymandias saw it. He's like, oh, it's bound to happen anyway. Let me push it to get it done. That way we could hurry up and have peace. Now, but a false this piece. piece a false yeah, piece, the, the, yes. the piece is a lie. And then when Rorschach's journal gets published, I mean, we're led to believe that it's all going to break down, right? I mean, who knows? I mean, it could be considered Alex Jones fake news. Who's this? You know, you, you, oh, you were you recovered some blog. You know, you recovered some stuff written on a piece of paper and it's supposed Actual to be actually dot com. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you know, you, you could definitely see. I could definitely picture like the media, like uh, we don't even know if that's the real Rorschach that wrote that. Uh, it's all BS, and it'll just end up being some kind of conspiracy theory that libertarians talk about like thirty years later. <laughs> right, because plus there's a history of Rorschach having mental illness, so pretty much anything he writes would get called into question. Exactly. Yeah, even though his psychiatrist is dead. I mean, he was nuked in, in, in New York yeah. City, but right. but uh, I, we assume that there's probably some record of him yeah, being treated by a psychiatrist. All right, so I want to ask one, one question. So after this nuclear event in like a dozen cities or whatever it is, how come Silk Spectre 1 and 2, Mommy and Daughter, get together and they're just like having coffee or having drinks and uh, the nerd boy Night Owl is there? And it's just like no big deal. But tens of millions of people just got incinerated and yet they're having this like cutesy, like pinch your butt, <laughs> you know, little fest. And it, it just seemed really bizarre to me that everyone would be over an event like that so quickly. I mean, yeah, it's a movie, but... You know, weird. Well, there's also the there. It just happened, right? They're they're hanging out in Antarctica, and Vite's big move is to turn on the TV with his remote control in like 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah. 15 minutes after everybody's dead, like 100 million people die, and all of a sudden Nixon and everybody's buddy buddy, and it's kumbaya all around the world. It, it's 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 yeah, it's absolutely condensed for for movie's sake and whatnot. So yeah, right. And I mean. I, I don't know. It's kind of American. We well, not American, but maybe human. I mean, we we kind of get over things, like not get over, but we kind of tuck it deep down after a disaster. We, we try to do things that seem normal to us, normal to us, and you know, we try to do it and try to act like everything's okay. You know, so I could I could see it being something like that. I, I don't know if you guys wanted to point out the difference. That obviously the ending, the way the ending transpired in the movie and the comics are completely different. Yeah, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that because yeah, yeah but, in the uh, in the comic book it's a giant like squid monster and it's yeah. just in one place. But let's let's talk about all the differences and you're going to be the expert on that, Ryan. So why don't you break it down for us? Oh well, well, I mean, basically, the thing about the comedian, the reason why he's like a main part of this is okay, he works for the government and he, you know, on one of his operations he finds out what Ozymandias is doing, which they put in the movie, but you see it a little more in the comic book. He find out, finds out what Ozymandias is doing and what, what his end goal is. That's why the comedian keeps, keeps saying <laughs> it's, it's one big joke, man. Like, it's a joke. And through, when you're reading the comic book, it's funny because you're like, what is he talking about? And in the end, uh, Ozymandias drops this huge, 
huge. I mean, it's like the size of a town. He He's able to transport it and drop it on the city of Manhattan. And it's like an alien squid thing he was able to create, you know, genetically. It's not real, but it's, you know, it has flesh and all that stuff. So it's alien. It looks alien to humans. And he drops it on a city. And everyone thinks this is this huge alien attack. Like aliens are invading the Earth. And it just, you know, everybody freaks out. And, you know, from that, the United States and the USSR come together. They say, okay, we're being invaded by aliens. Let's come together. Let's stop all this fighting and work together, you know, to form peace and get ready to fight. All right, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. You're telling me that Krugman reads this stuff, right? Because he said that the way for economic recovery was to imagine we're preparing for an alien invasion. Yes, yes. (laughs) I mean, Reagan, Ronald Reagan said this in the U.N., some of the inspiration came from this. He said in the UN that maybe to, to get peace, maybe aliens need to invade the earth. You know, maybe that will cause us to come together and work together to fight a common, you know, a common enemy, you know, and find world peace. That's what he said. You know, and that is one of his famous speeches that every, you know, that a lot of sci-fi, you know, harkens back to. Watchmen was one of it. And so and that was the whole thing. Like, let's create this alien force to get everybody to work in peace. Now, Alan Moore, the writer, I don't know. I never could figure out his lineage. He's just crazy, but he seems kind of, he's from, I think he's from, he grew up in England. So he's like an old English guy and he has that kind of socialist view. I think he's like an anarchist, but like a left-wing anarchist type of deal. Yeah. Yeah. I think he has like a thing against profiteering and money and corporations and Mm -hmm. yeah, that sort of thing. So he's like the self-contradictory anarchist. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, But you're saying, Ryan, because yeah, it's been a while and my memory of the comic book is super fuzzy. So you're saying, though, that um, Dr. Manhattan isn't seen as the cause of the catastrophe. Right, in the comic book. In the that, comic that book, was, because it's, yeah. it's interesting because in the movie, Daniel kind of pointed out that, you know, what's the point of, of, of Manhattan being the villain? Because if regardless of whether or not it's true that Manhattan is the villain – the, the technology to nuke everything is still is still there. But my point was that, well, Manhattan's a god, and you can't really kill him. You can't stop him, so he's going to be an omnipresent threat. And it's kind of a comment on mankind needing the threat of punishment from God in order to act well, yeah. um, which is uh, problematic for me for many reasons. Um, it seems to be uh, if you're, you, you lose that on virtue, if, if you're only being good, for uh, because of the threat of punishment and if there wasn't the threat of punishment you just be out raping and killing and murdering and you're just like a terrible person there's a great quote from Gillette about it but you're saying that there's this alien attack now is there a threat of a future alien attack because the the omnipresent threat of manhattan is what kind of keeps everybody in line for the foreseeable future until everybody realizes that manhattan's gone or whatever he doesn't really exist or who knows what but if there's just this one-time alien invasion thing, then as long as as soon as that's kind of solved, then you'd think that uh, your mankind's free to be back at each other's throats. Yeah, and but they never, you know, they never explained that. That was the first thing that I thought was, okay, this was a one-time shot. You know, you're not going to get this again. And so, I mean, as he made this, I mean, if, how is he going to? How does he win from this? You know, at the end of the day, people are going to forget about the alien that landed on on uh, Manhattan. You know, they're going to be yeah. like, well, that was 30 years ago. Who cares? They're not coming. So that's how it's going to end. And it's kind of the same thing with Manhattan in the movie with Dr. Manhattan because he says, hey, I'm going to hang out on another galaxy and 
walk across the sun, you know, whatever, you know, walk across the stars. So he's not coming back. So, I mean, it was he, basically Ozymandias has bought humanity like 30 years because they'll be right back. Yeah, and, and and with this giant squid thing, I mean, it's almost like a freak accident. I mean, is it explained that this is like a malicious attack or is it like, well, that's weird. All of a sudden some giant squid like teleported in and I'm sure it probably wasn't happy to be there and <laughs> it didn't want to be there, but it's there and whatever. It didn't quite a class, but it, it wasn't like I am here in order to like, this is a future threat that you need to worry about. You know what I mean? Like. This is a one-time like thing. You know, when 9/11 happened, like we knew or everybody said that there was these terrorists over in this place, and now we got an enemy. But if 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 just some planes had happened to crash into a building without a mastermind behind it, you're just like, well, how can you prevent? You know, I mean, there's nothing to fight there. I mean, that was just an accident, right? So it could have been right. just an accident where some squid fell down from the sky and whatever. I mean, yeah, it seems like it's an attack, but then once, yeah, like you said, like once you get over that, you're like, oh well. I mean, what's there to prepare for? Who knows? I mean, it, was, it seemed like a freak random thing. So who cares? Let's just go about our business. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's that's just the reality of it. And I think, uh, you know, just the, just the verification that there is other life, other life forms, you know, Alan Moore meant it to shoot, shake, shake the world, you know, to kind of shake the world, which I don't, I kind of wonder about it today. Like what, I don't know our society today it just doesn't is not surprised by anything. I think if it happened today, people are like, Oh, they're aliens. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, there's um gosh, I've heard that multiple times throughout my life, just from random places saying that we would all collectively lose our shit if all of a sudden we found out aliens were here and whatnot and there's a conspiracy about, you know, the government knows there's aliens here and they're just hiding yeah. from us to protect us and that sort of thing. And like everything would collapse and we would just go crazy if we found out aliens. And I think we live in a super jaded world where it's be like, oh, yeah. yeah, okay, we got aliens now, whatever. Where's my coffee? Where's my coffee? Yeah. Keep calling and carry on. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it just speaks to where he was, you know, where the writer was writing from at that time, Alan Moore. You know, that was yeah. that was where his head was at. So, I don't but know. What do you, do all, you think? It's all mid-80s, right? It's all written. Yeah, it's yeah. mid-80s. So, I mean, what do you think? Do you think there's this big fight when the movie came out among you know purists and you know people who had never seen the movie like you know should he has kept the should he have kept the alien squid in and did that or was he right to go a different route and have dr manhattan be the be the uh, scapegoat in what do you think yeah i think i think it's a better i think it's a better change i honestly Mm -hmm. do i i think the idea that although it wasn't sold i think if he had been able to sell it like this is god's punishment because he says that that line in the movie this is God's punishment for flirting with World War III. Mm. So we're, I'm punishing savage mankind, and only under threat of punishment from God can people get along and behave and whatnot. So I think you need to not just have one big giant event. If you're really going to either sell Manhattan as this God, this eventual God, you, can't, you can have one big event, I suppose, but then also keep the threat going that, yeah, here he is. There he is, you know, bring him out, wave him around a little bit every once in a while, maybe maybe blow up a building every now and then or something like that. I mean, you have to maintain the lie and really have that villain. I mean, like the war on terror doesn't work unless there's terrorism, right? Right. Mm, that's a good one. Because you, you, know? you have these weird, uh, you know, the FBI does these things where they, they'll find some, you know, crazy 17, person, 17-year-old Muslim kid. You know, and he's talking to somebody on the internet about uh, jihad or whatever, and you know, they, then they'll arrest him and say, "Hey, we," you know, then they'll sit. No, first 
they'll talk to some 17-year-old, uh, and then they'll get them talking to Jihad on Facebook or whatever. And then yep. they'll get one of their uh, one of their CIs to say, hey, I got some bombs I can sell you. I got some explosives. We can, I can teach you how to make explosives. And the 17-year-old is like, yeah, show me. And then they arrest them, and they're like, hey, we caught a terrorist. Yep. Hey, we, yeah, we got this mastermind. <laughs> we got this great terrorist mastermind. If we weren't, if we weren't here, you'd all be blown to hell. And, and, yeah. So, and, and, aren't they always, like, kind of retarded? Wasn't that um, the Hitler tactic with the Reichstag fire? Wasn't the uh, the guy who was pinned for that, like, this? Yeah, he was, like, developmentally disabled. They always grab somebody that is really impressionable or yeah. impressionable and angry or easily to be yeah, manipulated. I mean, you just go back through the history of the CIA and the FBI and Sirhan Sirhan. Yeah, they just – they use tools. They use people – I mean, what do they care? They – they're already super immoral, and they will use people as they're Ozymandian. Absolutely, yeah. they're absolutely, and justify the means. They are Machiavellian, no doubt. But what do you think, Daniel? Do you think, I mean, from what we've described, do you think that the uh, the movie is a change for the better? Well, I think if you introduce a, a giant weird squid at this point in this movie, it gets <laughs> like way out there. Ozymandias did have those um, genetically created um, cat things. Yeah, the so. Sphinx things, because he was all about pyramids and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah, and I thought so. that was weird. Which brings okay. up, that brings up a point. Yeah, that brings up a point. What What didn't you like about the movie? I thought, you know, obviously, yeah, I'm going to compare it to the comic book, but just in general, some things I thought they missed. Like, why does he call himself Ozymandias? Because in the comic book, you know, there was a big section where he, he roamed the earth for, like, years trying to discover greatness, you know, trying to become a better human and he discovered as uh, Alexander the Great, he discovered uh, Osmandius and all this stuff. And, you know, he really put that into his whole psyche. Uh, and it just, it just kind of caused over that. So he, he just, he goes from just a guy in a suit to wearing like a plastic suit with nipples in the movie. Yeah. So I, just, I thought he was a real weak, weak villain. A weak like villain in, in the movie. Uh, did George yeah, he didn't get a lot of... I'm sorry, Daniel, but uh, he didn't get a lot of screen time for me. As is, is, is a guy that believes like the hero is only as strong as the villain. I, I think you really got to have um, the the villain really. I mean, of course, it's also a mystery as to who the villain really is. So you can't show him too much being like all mustache twirling and whatnot. But yeah, I think if you're right, I, exactly what you just said. Um, if you got more of his backstory as to why he's called Ozymandias, why he believes what he believes, and yeah, if you got a little bit more of that, I, I, I think it would have been, worked a little bit more for me. But Daniel, what were you going to say? Oh, I forget at this point. But um, George exactly. Clooney nipples. George, yeah, the <laughs> Batman with the nipples. Uh, I had heard the term Ozymandias before, that word before, and I want to say it's from like a band, like an album maybe. And that's Well, about, in the movie, it's a, it's, a, it's a Percy Shelley poem, the Ozymandias look on my works, you mighty in despair, when Alexander got to the end of the earth and he lamented that there was no more territory to conquer. Right. Okay. Okay. So if if that's this character's name throughout the uh, entire comic series, graphic novel series, then that's sort of a a giveaway <laughs> to to uh, his entire personality and what is he attempting to do? Right. I mean, doesn't that like spoil the whole series? No, because he doesn't call himself that. I, he had like multiple names. I can't remember, but he had like multiple names in the series. But towards the end, he says, "I prefer to be called Ozymandias." You know, mm-hmm. they were able to work it like that. Is, is yeah, that connection. Okay. Yeah, I think uh, when when uh, I forget who it was hacked this computer, 
I, what was the pass? Was it Ramsey's two? Yep. And there was some Ramsey's connection. There. Right. So there was some connection there between that and Ozymandias or something. I don't know. And uh, an, another Easter egg was when he hacked the computer, there was a, a, a file or a folder called, uh, I don't know, was it Little Boys or something like that? Or it was something, <laughs> something real like creepy. Project? No, it was like, no, it was like some child porn or something. I don't know. Oh. But there was a folder oh. that referenced <laughs> Yeah, the reference to that, and in the beginning, you know, Rorschach commented that he thinks Ozymandias is, you know, a fruitcake or something like that. But I just they they included that in the movie, which I thought it was funny because I thought they would they wouldn't put that in. <laughs> like fruitcake, mm. like like gay. Yeah, or like a child molester or something. <laughs> oh, okay, and and yeah. Rorschach would would not like either of those situations, right? Because like you were no. saying before, he's like. The, the conservative style right wing, like the biblical style. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He's there. He's, you know, righteousness, you know, even though he, he has a kind of a, a weird view of righteousness, you know, he, in the movie, they made him like, like there was a scene, you know, where he uh, killed the, the, uh, the guy that kidnapped the little girl and he just like chops his head. That was Zack Snyder. Like that was all Zack Snyder. It wasn't like that in a comic book, like the, right. You know, he gave him a choice in the comic book, but in this one, he was, they tried to make him a little more insane. And then they go to the uh, jail scene, which I loved in a movie. I loved when he went to prison and he's just like, everybody's like afraid of you. He said, you need to fear me. <laughs> you know, I loved, yeah. I loved all of that. That was great. Yeah, he certainly seemed badass. And I, I kind of likened him. Uh, there was a post in the Tom Woods group recently um, talking about Murray Rothbard and how Malice, Michael Malice was saying like, hey, you know, the thing about Rothbard is that he wasn't able to maintain friendships throughout his life. And I commented, well, you know, that's the price of being principled, right? And so I likened the Rorschach character to Rothbard being the that's, that's principled crazy. guy who, no matter the cost, is going to stick to his principles. That's crazy. I thought the exact same thing when I was, you know, rereading some Watchmen stuff earlier today. I was like, man, right Rorschach is like a little crazy, like a like an early '90s Rothbard, where he just got fed up with, <laughs> he's just fed up with everything. He's like getting with the paleos, and you know, he was just, you know, when Rothbard was just like, you know, I'm tired of this shit. Damn, I'm old, beating this libertarian drum for decades. You know, let's get some win. So I, uh, you know, I agree with that. I, I like, I like Rorschach. You know, I don't, you know, he, he's a violent guy, but I just think he's very entertaining. Yeah, so let's talk yeah, about no. the the ending where Rorschach basically says, "Do it, you know, like kill me, protect the lie, because I'm gonna tell people about this. I'm gonna stick to my principles no matter the cost." Yeah, he's very much a straight up principles. You know, justice may be done, justice may justice be done, though the heavens fall, kind of guy. He's very much uh, into the method, into the principles, and you know, I don't care what the consequences are. So he is—he was absolutely yeah, going out. Um, he's leaving. He was going to go immediately to tell everybody what the truth was, regardless of what the consequences were going to be, um, because you know Vite had to be punished. Vite killed a bunch of millions and millions of people. Uh, hmm. He had to be punished, even if you know nuclear war was going to start the next day. Now you know I'm a very principled person. I like to think of myself as a very principled person, and uh, I. I don't know. Would you have done the same thing, Daniel? Would you would you have uh, revealed the lie, or would you have said, well, maybe maybe the world ending in Armageddon, you know, maybe maybe it's not the greatest thing. Well, how it's presented in the movie, I don't think that the lie was good enough cover. 
and I I try to live as principally as a, as I possibly can, and, and given this extra nor, extraordinary situation, I, I would like to think I would be like Rorschach, but perhaps may, may be more tactful and say, you know, attempt to reason <laughs> with them and be like, hey, this lie is not going to hold up, <laughs> whether I tell them or not. Uh, right. <laughs> you know, it, it's a false piece, and uh, it's not going to work anyway. So, you know, murdering me now is not going to help your cause. Yeah, Rorschach, he, uh, he would not, you know, he's, he's not the one to mince his words at all. But, you know, I mean, I, I guess for me, I always think back to that. I used In my days, there was, there was a short stretch where I used to watch Bill O'Reilly. I thought, you know, I thought Bill O'Reilly was okay. It was like 2006 mm-hmm. and 2007. Uh, you know, forgive me for it, but I used to watch him and he'd always talk about, what if, you had, we were talking about torture, and he'd be like, what if, you know, these guys find a, ter- a guy and he knows that the nuclear, the terrorists have a nuclear bomb about to strike New York tomorrow, and you have a chance to find out, but you have to use torture methods. What will you do? You know, and I'm thinking, you know, maybe the the Navy SEAL or whoever or the CIA guy maybe does torture him to find out. I don't know. Maybe he does. But let's not make that a policy. Let's not say it's okay to do that. You know, let's not make that a, a, a you know, written in stone thing that, hey, you have the legal right to torture people. You know, if he does that and to get that information, okay, he does it. And afterwards, he has to meet the societal, the, the societal rule and the societal judgment on that, you know, whatever it may be, if that's through a court, a judge or whoever, you know, and maybe they say, Hey, you saved our lives. We're not going to put you in jail. You did, you did a good thing for us. Although we don't think that should be done ever again for anybody else. You know, that was a one-time deal. I don't know, you know, but I don't think you should be able to make that a policy. So with, uh, you know, I wouldn't be able to co-sign what Ozymandias doing, even on utilitarian grounds, because where does that end? You know, I mean, what, where, yeah, we're talking about billions or millions now, but what about one or two? Can I kill one guy to save two people? Can I kill two, kill two people to save four, four? Where's the, where do I, you know, where do I stop? You know, what's the calculation here? I, I, I view Ozymandias as a proxy for government itself, yep. claiming that they're doing something for the greater good, but committing great atrocities in the process and trying to justify it. And I've got a quote of Murray Rothbard's up here saying, Quote, if we look at the black record of mass murder, exploitation, and tyranny levied on society by governments over the ages, we need not be loath to abandon the, the Leviathan state and try freedom. Hmm. And I think that's a great quote. Governments are responsible in the name of the greater good. And Robert, you alluded to this earlier. Every tyrant has some justification for, for the atrocities that they do. Uh, but it's all utilitarian grounds, and that basically allows you to justify just about anything in the name of the greater good, and that's what the government's claimed to be doing. Right. What if Ozymandias – I mean, what if US, the U.S. and the USSR doesn't go to war? What if at the last minute they say, hey, let's talk. Let's not do this. <laughs> let's not blow each other up. Let's figure out some other thing. And they just save millions of lives just by doing that. But he decides before that he knows what's going to happen, that he knows the future. So he makes a calculated decision that these millions of people aren't worth it. They they have less value, so they could be deleted because I know, you know, I'm, I, I know enough. I'm the smartest man in the world. I know that this war is coming. And, you know, obviously you get influenced by the media. Just like today I saw 
that uh, Iran uh, shot a satellite up in the space or whatever. And everybody was like, oh, my God, Iran has a satellite, so they have ICBMs. We need to get ready. They're going to they're gonna be shooting missiles towards the U.S. soon. I'm like, what? And you go from here to there? Seriously? <laughs> so imagine if those people had access to the nukes, you know what I mean? <laughs> You know, so you you can't you know you can't depend on one person deciding you know making these decisions if all these lives can be taken you know for this for this or the other. Absolutely not. Yeah, I mean, um, if, if if governments have that kind of power, then maybe we don't need governments. Like I've I've heard people claiming that this vote on healthcare reform is going to result in twenty or thirty million people losing their healthcare coverage. Well, isn't that an indictment of government being? able to have that kind of influence over your lives? Isn't that, isn't that like an indication that maybe there's a problem here? Hello. Yeah, with the stroke of a pen, they can affect your life that much. Yeah, I think that does make it sort of an indictment against it, Daniel. Can you imagine if a company said, oh, yeah, we're going to change this rule, so uh, 30 million of you guys are going to die? I mean, it would, right. I, mean it, <laughs> it, I, I can't even imagine what would happen. It would be unreal, you know? But... You know, with government, it's just it's kind of looked at as this thing like, oh, we just got to get out and go vote. You got to call your congressman, call this number right now to make sure this doesn't happen. I'm, I'm starting to look at things like it's been a libertarian for 10 years or so. I'm starting to look at things like I live in like a kind of a weird Watchmen type universe where like, what is this weird stuff going on? I have to call this number to make sure I don't die, you know? <laughs> and I mean, and, and even that whole that whole that whole thing, like, okay, they have control over my life. I'm going to die if I don't call this number. That's a fallacy. It's not real. But if, if when it's beat into your head over and over and over all day on CNN and everything else, you start to believe it. And these people really believe it. Like, oh, my God, if these people pass this vote, I'm going to die tomorrow. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's yes. the whole progressive uh, liber- uh, liberal stance right now is like Trump is the next Hitler. And if he wins the election, you know, all the gays are going to be rounded out. The transgenders are going to be kicked out of the military, so they can't go and murder people. Please ban me from the military. Yeah. Ban, yeah. I, don't, I, stop, don't, don't stop a trans. Just ban everybody. Ban yeah, women. Keep, ban. keep going. Keep going. I tweeted, I tweeted, I tweeted yesterday on, uh, okay, at, at the, uh, the Afro-Libertarian, please ban, ban blacks from the military at <laughs> Donald Trump. Just please ban us. I, I'm fine. It, we, I'm not included. Ban everyone from the military. That's great. You know, it's a good thing. So if they if they're mad, they can't be drafted. Okay. Hey. Yeah. How how do I get out of it? You know, I mean, uh, Corporal Klinger is that the guy's name in Mash? He was onto something. You know. <laughs> yeah, he was always trying to get that uh, crazy whatever deferment dressing up as a woman. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and uh, to harken back harken back to something you were talking about just uh, just a few moments ago, Ryan. I got a Tom Woods quote posted up here. It says, uh, government has a habit of blaming the private sector for its own failings while taking credit for advances we, in fact, owe to the private sector. Hmm. That's your story. That's all day. I've got a Hoppe quote up that states are responsible for the deaths of hundreds of millions. Compared to that, victims of private crimes are almost negligible. And, and quotes like this and more can be found at actualanarchy.com slash quote. And I don't know if you saw this, uh, came out a couple of months ago, but apparently the civil asset forfeiture, the dollar value um, surpassed the total reported loss to criminals uh, hmm. last year. So what? the police are, are taking more than the criminals are. 
which is kind of ridiculous. Yeah, it's insanity. Wow. wow. But, oh, um, I was going to totally change the direction, so go ahead and say something. No, I was just going to say, all of a sudden, uh, the left cares about asset forfeiture since... Uh, I oh, think because Trump supports it, yeah. Yeah, Trump supports it. So now they're like, oh, my God, they're stealing from – the government is stealing from the people. I'm like, are you serious? Like, Ron Paul was talking about this in the 80s. And now, <laughs> and now you know, now this is such a big thing for you. Uh, oh, they disgust me. Yeah. All right, take um, us away, Robert. Where, where do you want to go next? Well, speaking of government being the villain, I, I was just curious. Um, what if – put on my little what if hat. Um, what if Ozymandias' solution – Instead of murdering a bunch of innocent people, um, at the end of the movie, he blows up like that war room with like the president and Kissinger and all those generals and whatnot. So you're asking the uh, what if, if you could go back in time and kill Hitler, would you do it? Well, no, I mean, sort of. But what if his solution had been to kill government instead of kill all those innocent people? Would he still be a villain? Yeah. Yeah, it's almost like you need that immediate threat though i mean they are responsible for millions and millions of deaths so it's like it's kind well, of if he doesn't because... do it there's nuclear annihilation and everybody dies mm. right perspective we don't know he doesn't know he can suspect that that's the case i suppose but i guess yeah. any action you take is going to have a certain amount of perspective, right yeah every every action has a reaction i would i'd say that's a pretty that would be a pretty dumb move by him because of course i mean it's not like you could actually kill government that's like war on terror you know you're trying to kill an idea yeah it's a disease of the mind right right so i mean you could you could take out nixon and all those guys but what comes behind them you know it could be worse you know but that was his solution though because because um people would band around government then like you saw what happened after 9-11 and i imagine it was something similar after jfk like people rallied around government right but they were going to rally around government regardless they rallied around government when all of a sudden the government's like, yeah, we're going to be all kumbaya and we're going to work together. Everybody's like cheering that in the end of the mm-hmm. movie. But so the, the action is the same, except you'd be punishing more of the guilty people that are, taking, that are threatening the planet. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's almost the, the Rorschach response is like punish the, the guilty. And Ozymandias is like, well, just make an example mm. of anyone, right? Or, or a, a big enough group that it's noticeable. Yeah, I think I see what you're saying. I, I don't know. It's late. I'm tired. I don't know if I'm making any sense at this point. But I think uh, <laughs> Rorschach was like, only punish those who have demonstrated the, of their guilt. And Ozymandias was just like, innocence doesn't matter so long as it's visible, so long as it's a lesson to somebody. Well, I, okay. My point was is that the people are going to rally around whatever and then immediately go back to what they were doing anyway, regardless. So why murder... 50 million people worldwide when you could just blow up one room. It's he's a perfectly utilitarian, right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to have the same effect because Nixon and Kissinger were the ones that were just about to launch the nukes. Without them, it doesn't happen. Maybe someone comes in, steps in later, but well, that's going to that happen. whole, like, you know, command structure, right? Like, who's the fifth or eighth person down the line? No, all right. Well, so say he wipes out the, all the entire government. <laughs> he wipes out the entire U.S. government and the entire Russian government. Boom. Instantly gone. Hmm. He he pulls the Rothbard button push. <laughs> well, that was where he's that, blistering his finger. That was interesting. Pulls the Rothbard. That was an uh, abolitionist button. I'm gonna pull that one up. Hold on. All right, go ahead. Go ahead, Ryan. I'm just gonna pull this up on screen. No, no, no. I just I don't, I don't know. I don't. 
I don't think any any of his solutions were good solutions. Maybe some were better. I mean, maybe that's a better solution than what he did. Obviously, he maybe he took out a couple hundred thousand government workers, just everybody connected to the government. He took them out. Maybe that's a good thing short term, but uh, I, I think the outcome would be bad regardless. What if this? Kaiser Sose on their asses. Yeah. Well, what if this? What if this? What if there was somebody I'm not I'm not suggesting this, I'm not endorsing this. But what if in the movie he murders all of government and then as soon as like elections are held and new people are in government, he murders all those government people. And then there's another election and then fewer people get elected and he murders all those people. And eventually people get the idea that okay, being a politician is a good way to get yourself murdered. And <laughs> You know, I mean, wouldn't that kind of like dissuade people? Like, okay, we got to figure something out. We've got to do something without government. I don't know, man. I think it would make it like, well, they don't want us to do this, so it must be something really cool or really important or really <laughs> like meaningful. You know? Yeah. Like, well, like kids I think will do drugs because they're illegal. Like, oh, this is bad, so let's do it. Or well, how, but if you do, you're going to get killed. Right. But but, but they're going to agitate for it or or do it in uh in a black market for uh format like underground. You know. Right, and then the underground people will get killed. And we're talking about a guy that's like the superhumanly smart in Manhattan who knows everything or can learn anything. So, so basically he would become the government because he's the, this giant gun. <laughs> yeah, he'd be the, right. the ultimate dictator. <laughs> right, he'd be he'd, the ultimate dictator. He'd become the thing that he's destroying. Yep. I don't know we'd be better off. <laughs> <laughs> you don't think you'd be better off without government? Even if they just no, like, you, what if, you'd, still, you'd still have government. You'd still have a government. That's what Ryan was just saying. Well, but all you would have you'd have Manhattan and Vite, who would be killing everybody yeah, who wanted that? to do a thing, who wanted to violently control other people. But you wouldn't have Vite and Manhattan writing regulations and passing laws. Maybe, maybe not. Yeah, at that point but, they kind of have the uh, you know wherewithal to do whatever the hell they wanted. Well, you do. I mean, he has like the technocrats, like wet dream, like just to have the smartest people solve all the world's problems. Right, and as we know from Hayek, that only creates even more problems. He does have that fatal conceit. I don't know. I, th I think it's just funny to pose uh, interesting twists on the movie. Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah, I agree. You know, this is one I, I will watch again. I don't know when, because we have a whole slate of shows to um, watch movies and prep for. We, we have a rating system. It's basically a thumbs up, thumbs down. It's black and gold for good, black and red for bad, and maybe just your overall... Final thoughts on the movie itself. Uh, I'll give it black and gold. Thumbs up, man. It's a good movie. I, I think if you watch it, watch the director's cut and be aware it's a movie that you might want to watch two or three times just to make sure you get everything. If you're a libertarian, it's, it's a good movie because you're talking about, you know, people that kind of take take uh, <clears throat> take matters in their own hand. They're not waiting, waiting for, you know, the government to fix things. So they go out and do it on their own. Hey, you know, the outcome might not be perfect but hey you know what i'm saying they they're going out and do it themselves you know they're not waiting on permission uh and it's a you know it's a it's a very detailed movie it's a it's a dark movie it's not a, a cookie cutter film like you see nowadays with a lot of the current films it's you know it's kind of kind of out the box so kind of you have to suspend your belief and just sink yourself in it and enjoy it uh, so I, I think everyone should just give it a try you know give it a try after you watch it once and you're like eh it was okay. Just go ahead and watch it again, and then tell me what you think. Yeah, where, uh, where, where, where can they tell you that, Ryan? AfroLibertarian.com uh, or at your Twitter at, handle? Do you want to uh, chat at you? On Twitter, at AfroLibertarian. 
All right, everyone. Everyone who has an opinion on this movie, hit him up on Twitter. Hit me up. All right, Robert, what's your uh, rating on this one? Uh, it's definitely black and gold. Um, for the reasons we talked about, uh, as far as the acting and the directing and just the overall tone and the feel and the look of the movie, I thought that was all top-notch. I think it's interesting that – I just kind of had this thought, so bear with me as I flesh this out maybe – that government, even though Vite is like technically the villain in the movie um, – Government is the ultimate villain. They are the motivator. They're the ones with essentially the Armageddon nuke gun to everybody's head. So I'm not I'm not even convinced that Vite is essentially a moral actor in this movie or anybody really is. I mean, what what they do, what they choose to react to, even if it does kill millions and millions of people, he's only doing it in response to this threat of nuclear annihilation. So it's kind of like when you got a gun to your head, you're not necessarily the moral actor anymore i still think that's a bad guy i mean, I still think he should have come up with a better idea <laughs> but it didn't involve the murder of all those people of course but i think there's an argument to be made that Vite wasn't the moral actor and therefore not necessarily the villain and the government shocker shocking off and i guess talking about the government being the villain is the ultimate villain here um and of course it's the belief in authority that creates the, the government in the first place so that's that's my take on that um good movie watch it it's it's unconventional. It's um it's very dense. And like Ryan said, you got I think it benefits from repeat viewings. Yeah, you get to see a little bit more. Maybe on your first viewing, you don't you don't catch everything. It's 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 it's, it's good. It's it's somewhat of an improvement on the comic, and then it's a detriment on in other ways. And I like was it the ultimate cut, Ryan? Is that what you said with the inclusion of the the Black Raider? Yep. Yeah, the ultimate cut. I think I want to look into that. That might be something I'm gonna want to have a copy of at some point. That'd be great. Daniel, what did you think of the movie? All right. Well, with some of the comments you just made, I feel like we could go another three hours. Uh, Probably. Somehow giving Vite a pass on this because there's a gun to his head. I totally disagree with that. I I, uh, I want to introduce a, a third rating to this, and I, it's going to be contingent. My rating is going to be black and gray, the agorist flag. Uh, the jury's still out for me because I feel like it was so convoluted and it was broken up for me in the viewing to where it didn't make a whole lot of cohesive sense, but having this discussion and the uh, notion that both of you guys suggested, which was to watch it again, I feel like it's going to ring it around to the black and gold for me. But being a total newbie to this universe, it was a lot to try to take in all at once phrasing. And uh, it's a lot like Batman, uh, the dark Knight, where there's just so many things going on in the movie and it's so dense and there's so much to talk about that you can't even get it all in one viewing. And so I feel like I need to watch this one one more time at minimum to be able to give it a real uh, fair shake and to to give a true rating, though I, I tend to think it's going to go towards that black and gold. Very nice. Well, I want to thank Ryan for coming on, having us on again, or coming on again, sorry. Uh, it's been a real treasure, a real treat having him on, um, talking about Watchmen. Uh, yeah, a lot of fun. Yeah, guys, I appreciate it. You know, I mean, uh, I always love coming here and talking, like I said, two of my favorite things, movies and, you know, uh, anarchy and libertarianism and just life in general. I always enjoy this. As far as Watchmen goes, uh, hey, just, just give it a shot and open your mind up and go and go to your Barnes and Noble or Books a Million. Does that still exist? I don't know. Right. 
Amazon.com from the Amazon, Amazon from the actualanarchy.com link. Yeah, click on the link. Go to actualanarchy.com and click on the Amazon link and buy the graphic novel and just take your time. I read it at work. I don't know. It was years ago at my job. This is when you're working for the state, right? Working for the state had nothing to do, so I wasted taxpayer money. Wasted taxpayer money. I, you didn't waste it. You didn't waste it. You used it Rock for Watson something did. productive. Right. I was productive with it. You know, and I read the whole graphic novel in that whole day, and I was just like, ah, oh, that was great. I knew nothing about it. So obviously, if you if you listen to this, you know something about it, but you'll you'll still get great enjoyment from it. Uh, so hey, and hey, if you want to hit me up. I have my blog, theafrolibertarian.com. There's about six or seven posts there, or you can read it on actualanarchy.com. Just search Afro-Libertarian. Or, you know, you can hit me up at, at Afro-Libertarian on Twitter. I'm always out there, and I'll answer any of your questions or just chat with you or just give me a follow. I've always used those. So. All right. Well, thanks again, Ryan. And uh, we might kick it into a little bit of overdrive after this, but we're going to wind the show down here. So uh, audience, thank you for joining us for actualanarchy.com slash 34, the episode about Watchmen. Go to that website for our show notes page. You'll find links to uh, Ryan's work and also trailer and some other information about this show and some of the other things that we've talked about. If you want to support our show, we've just introduced the new tip jar page, which has links to all sorts of ways that you can support us through Amazon, Liberty doc, or libertyclassroom.com, readitfor.me, Tuttle Twins. Uh, there's a um, merchandise that we have that's on Gearbubble. So there's actual anarchy stuff. There's Reed Rothbard stuff. There's maximum freedom stuff, all sorts of stuff you can do to support what we are doing here. And lest, lest I uh, forget the, Patreon page, which has a whole nother bevy of goodies. So click on over to patreon.com slash Reed Rothbard and you'll find out all the different goodies available at all the different levels. So I just want to say thank you guys very much for joining us. We do appreciate you being a listener and do uh, give us a like, comment, share, subscribe, whatever you got to let us know that you like what we're doing. Spread the word. Uh, our goal is to educate and emancipate, but through uh, entertainment. And so that's why we talk about movies. We try to sneak in the libertarian and the Austrian economics into something that you guys might already be familiar with, and it makes it somewhat shareable out to the rest of the world. So thank you guys very much. We, uh, we believe we're building a, a really great community, and we look forward to continuing to do that with you. And with that, I say goodnight. And uh, you guys want to say goodnight to the folks, and then we can uh, move into overdrive if you guys are good for it. Good night to the folks. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a good one. Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do